have some questions I'd like to ask you. Flush Studios Podcast. Now, don't tell me you're taking all this seriously. <laughs> Everybody and thanks for joining me for another chat at Flush Studios. Uh, this is the Flush Studios podcast, um, the show where I ask artists and filmmakers to join me at my studio, whether digitally or hopefully one day in person, uh, to talk about art, what we do, what inspires us, and whatever the hell we want. This week I'm joined by the prolific and extremely awesome Michael J. Epstein. Uh, we talk about what good could come from what's happening in the world with COVID and everything, how there could be some silver lining in that. Um, we talk about the perseverance that comes with success or the success that comes with perseverance, how you need to keep pushing forward if you're going to make it and how from, from little things like buying a camera comes much larger things. If you put in the time and the effort and you really care. And we talk about X-Men three. <laughs> Uh, Michael is the accomplished director of multiple feature films, including the extremely fun clickbait. Um, I had the pleasure of seeing that, and uh, we were going to talk at South Texas Underground Film Festival, but we kind of ran out of time with all of the fun that was happening. So this is the perfect time while we're all in lockdown and quarantine to to chat about what he does. Um, he He's also worked on music videos, including the recent Jimmy Eats World video for 555, his short uh, Umbilicus Desidero opened for Greywood's plot at the South Texas Underground Film Festival, and it had everyone laughing hysterically, and it uh, perfectly set the tone of the night, and there's nothing better than being at a film festival where you open, your movie is about to open, and they open it with some amazing short films, and that's what happened, and Umbilicus Desidero was one of those. Um, he's working on a bunch of stuff right now, as you'll hear in the episode, and Michael is just a wonderful filmmaker and a wonderful dude, and I'm so honored to have the opportunity to chat with him on this episode of the podcast. Um, before we get started, if you want to help support Flush Studios and what we do, this is my least favorite part of the show. I hate talking about this, but it's a big deal because right now I'm attempting to get comics made, and you'll hear on this episode that I'm in, in the midst of producing new things. I'm hiring artists, and one way that I'm hiring artists is by actually taking all of the Patreon money that I've made over the last... Uh, going on seven months, no, seven months, going on eight months, I'm taking all of that money that I've saved and I'm putting it towards hiring artists to help me with things such as comics, uh, new website, new music, and actually producing things. So if you want to help support Flush Studios, there's one way that specifically helps, and that's the Patreon, patreon.com slash Flush Studios. Head over there. Uh, if you can give $1, $5, $10 a month, it goes a long ways, and you also the, the higher tiers get credits in my movies, and the lower tiers get all of the content on the blog. So, patreon.com slash, Jesus Christ, patreon.com slash Flush Studios. It really does help, and it's helping artists right now at a time where they need they need it, and, I, and, and it's helping Flush Studios to create content that we've never created before. Um, so, anyway, now that I'm done with that, the awful part is out of the way. We can move on to the good part. This interview was absolutely fantastic, and I had a blast. The audio gets a little wonky here and there. You know, that's part of being on Zoom. It's never going to be flawless. But I think it's easy to hear past those little issues for the amazing content in this episode. I personally had an amazing time talking with him. So without further ado, here is my podcast episode with Michael J. Epstein. And I am recording. Hey, man, how are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I think we're all in a weird spot, you know, in in the industry that we work in, just trying to figure out what we're doing. Yeah, we definitely are. And it's like hard to even make wager any kind of guess as to what things are going to be like in a year. It's almost fun to think about because I start to get I'm really positive, like overly positive. I know that about myself, but I start to think about the cool that could come out of this. People being locked up with their thoughts, some of the like artistic expression that could come out of this? Yeah, I mean, it definitely is an opportunity for people to dig in and write more, but also I think we're we're all in this like very strange mindset, so I don't know if that's going to be good or bad. I don't know what that's going to result in. It'll be interesting to see. We're yeah. definitely going to see a lot of like negative movies, negative <laughs> art coming out, but that gets me excited. I love that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, me too. What's kept you busy? 
Uh, you know, it, it's it's been kind of a weird wave of like trying to decide because we, we were in the middle of shooting two movies, uh, two features, and then we have another one that's kind of in post uh, that needs a little bit more shooting as well. And so I thought I would really dig in and get all that done, but I've really not been able to accomplish any of that at all. So um, a lot of it has been trying to decide like what are small things that we can tackle that that are going to keep us keep us going. And we've done a little bit of music, we've done some recording, we got a dog, which has been really important for staying sane and just being a human, feeling human. Um, it gives us like a routine, you know, I have to get up out of bed, take the dog out. Yeah. You know, and then have to make sure that we're entertaining him. He's very demanding. So that that's actually been really helpful uh, emotionally and mentally and, and sort of scheduling wise to keep us, you know, feeling like there's some routine because otherwise every day kind of just blends into, into nonsense. Um, so yeah, so a little bit of music, a little bit of film work, uh, some post work on stuff, taking an opportunity to kind of like try to catch up on some projects that were backburnered sort of that that there's an opportunity to work on now. Dude, that's a I love that point about, you know, the little things. The hardest thing for me is I'm such a big picture person. I'm always thinking about like the next feature, the next big thing and taking this opportunity to go, okay, what can I do just today like give myself an hour because i've gotten in i got to the point where a couple weeks ago i was finding it hard to get anything done my actual um ability to like finish something just dropped to zero for a while and then i i suddenly was i woke up and i was just like okay paint for an hour do something for an hour just one hour and then i found i was getting done with a ton more stuff yeah that's totally been the key for us too is to break it down to make it feel less overwhelming because it's hard to you know I'm so used to, I, I think you are as well, just working like nonstop and being just excited about just constant, you know, driving forward and doing new things and doing all different projects. And it's been a really difficult change to only be able to work at a capacity that's maybe like 10% of that or something, you know, so it feels weird and it feels bad to be in that place. But then if you start to break it down and say, well, okay, 10% is still some cool stuff and I can just sit, sit down and say, okay, every day I'll do a little bit of something. Every day I'll, I'll think about something that's fun and not pressure myself to get any, because there's no, right now there's no real due date on anything because right. our, our, our big projects are kind of stalled for, you know, however long. Um, so yeah, I have to do post on one of them, but we have a few more days of shooting on it. So it's like, well, I, I'm, we're not going to get to that shooting for, I don't think it's going to be at least a year. So it's not like today I need to rush and do that edit. You know, if I, if I need to do that edit six months from now, that's fine too. The deadlines thing, man, without, you have to like, now we have to actually set our own deadlines and no one is, we have no one like pushing us towards it. Usually it's, I I don't know if this is for you, but for me, like working with a crew and working with people, even if it's just like a small crew of my friends, I have this obligation for the, towards them. Like I want to finish it because they worked hard on it and they were a part of it, but now there's no interactions so there's no obligation yeah we usually use kind of the festival cycle as our driver i mean even if it didn't really really matter exactly but we would say like oh we want to get it out you know we need to get this done may 1st so we can submit to xyz festivals and that was always like the motivation and um so that was good but now like festivals are kind of screwy and you know some of it's happening still but it's not really it's the, the whole structure is a mess so it's kind of like well there's not really that deadline anymore yeah, man, I'm so bummed. Everyone was telling me about Genre Blast and how fun it is, and then I had, uh, Greywood's plot got in, and now I can't even go. I'm like, this sucks so hard. Yeah, yeah, that's our one of our favorites. I mean, we've gone, I think, what is this, the fifth year now? So we, we had a movie in the first year, but we didn't attend, and then we attended all every other year since. And we would have been there this year, you know, for continuing that streak. So definitely totally bummed like like you are with that. It's a great community, great fest. It's really fun. Uh, great projection at the at the space there. And it's just, it's in Virginia. That's at the Alamo Draft House. It's basically in a, in a shopping center with like a hotel and one restaurant. And nobody really leaves the whole time. So it's like everybody just descends upon this place and then we're all like oh. stuck there in a in a little community um for the weekend it's really really fun it's really cool you're cool. breaking my heart yeah well next year <laughs> next year i know that's the thing and like now i, I a lot of the festivals one of the, the cool things that's come out of this is realizing the festivals that i miss or the ones that i really wish i could go to or the people that i'm not able to see during this time and appreciating it 
because I kind of have become a, I don't know, a poo-pooer of festivals to a certain extent just because I'm poor. <laughs> and like putting that money into it, flying out and all of that stuff, I was always like, is it worth what I'm paying instead of making another movie or putting the money towards something else? But this right. year made me realize how much I love some of those festivals. Yeah, it's really picking the handful that that work for you, you know, that are really the right connection. Because, you know, we, we, as all filmmakers, you start out kind of blanketing, like just submitting without really knowing what you're doing. And then you kind of narrow it over and over again until you're, until you're down to like a dozen that you're like, you know, these are your places you like to be. And, and we don't attend them all necessarily every year, but, um, but yeah, that it, it, keeping that community going is really, really fun. And I'm, it is really, it's been, it's been a rough year because of that. And a few of them have moved online and have done cool stuff online. I know you, you've probably seen some of that at least that the yeah. online stuff and, um, we participated in a few of those, both as filmmakers and as just audience. And that's, it's been really fun. I mean, it's not the same, obviously, as gathering, you know, in a room and yeah. getting to really interact. But but people have done a nice job. Like, uh, we just did Sick and Wrong. And um, Stephen, who runs that, did the event uh, on Eventive. And then also created, like, a filmmaker chat lounge where people just went in and, like, kind of video chatted with each other about stuff and then he you know he did q a's with every single block and so it really it it was the next best thing to actually being in a in a place together and i think you know what was nice is a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily have been able to make the trip could attend because it doesn't you know it doesn't cost anything to travel you know to pay for travel or lodging right you actually get in a way you get all the filmmakers uh attending whereas you might have had you know a 20 percent or 30 percent or whatever um, if it were a physical fest. One of the things that I think will change as we move forward is learning like these kind of things we can do online. I actually did a screening of Greywood's plot online where I sold tickets for like two bucks and then yeah. I did like it unlisted on YouTube and sent out the link in the morning and then people tuned in and watched it. Yeah, that's been really fun. I mean, I know a bunch of people have been doing watch parties. We've done uh, our last feature. We did a watch party for similar to that and it was on uh, Facebook. And so same kind of thing where we, you know, we're sitting there commenting on, we, we got the, a lot of the cast and crew to show up because they're just sitting at home anyway. Um, and so they were able to, you know, to comment on like memories of scenes. It was kind of like a live uh, commentary version of it, which you could either just, you know, watch the movie or you could read along with that. And then at the end we did a Q and A uh, on top of that. So we answered questions, you know, sort of in the chat, but then we also did a, a broader Q and A uh, video Q and A with a lot of the people on zoom at the end. And that was really great. It was like, it actually, in a way, felt like the best screening of the movie that we had because it was the only one that everybody could participate in. And, Dude, totally. And and find an audience that generally wouldn't be there. That was the thing that I liked about the YouTube or about the, uh, the, the, the screening I did was there was a lot of people who would never have come out to the movie. Like, they just never would have. But they came and watched it on there because they could watch from the comfort of their house. They didn't feel so, you know, there's just something about certain people won't watch a movie like Greywood's plot, an indie, no budget horror kind of comedy right. movie. And they, they kind of took the gamble on it, knowing that they could just shut it off or there wasn't going to be the awkward moment. And they liked it. So it was a cool, like, I don't know. It was just a cool, different experience. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of uh, things will, will, change everybody's looking at what the new kind of approaches and models are and i think even big studios are realizing that uh vod and other kinds of screening opportunities special like live screening opportunities are available to them and that they may need to make shifts because we're not going to be hopping into movie theaters really you know in a in a broad sense for a long time i mean right. it's not gonna not gonna be back to even if it's allowed or even if you know there's there's kind of a feeling, even even when this passes, I think there'll be a psychological trauma that exists for, for some period of time about being in public spaces around people. And so it's going to take a while to ease back into something like gathering in a, in a theater and watching stuff. I don't think we'll see the numbers that we had before for even for big blockbusters. So they're going to have to really think about what it is that they're doing. And I know there was, there was talk about uh, AMC agreeing with Universal about shortening the window so they could do home VOD on stuff. And so you, I think we'll see a lot of shifts like that in the, in the near future. And the question is, how do the indies uh, like us manage to navigate that without being stomped on by uh, the next Marvel movie or what, whatever is? I brought this podcast back. I was doing it for all. I mean, I, I've done it for years. And then I stopped doing it. I brought it back because I, I need the inspiration of talking to artists and filmmakers. So I kind of do it selfishly. And then I just found that people people dig it and like to listen and whatnot. But um, the... 
uh, one of the one of the reasons I, I started doing this again was for that actual like talking to indie filmmakers and trying to figure out trying to form a, the community outside of just like there's always like a competition to a certain extent because everyone wants to get in the festivals everyone wants to you know get their movie seen but in reality there is there's ton there's many many hours for people to watch stuff and we're seeing it and I think as this community is growing because of what's happening right now there is I'm seeing less competition and more like love for each other and sharing each other's movies and finding ways to get things seen and making that audience that generally would just go watch Marvel movies comfortable with the kind of weird shit we're making. Yeah, I, I definitely think I, I've never really felt too competitive with other other filmmakers like, you know, like us. Yeah. Uh, but I, uh, I really think, you know, it's a win if we get people interested in smaller films and interested in weird films and being willing to look at things that aren't slick or in the following the conventions that they expect that's a win for everybody i mean i think it's a win for art to be honest like it's yeah. not, not oh even, yeah not even just for us but i mean i think it's, it makes the world better i think there's more opportunity and you know in the history of film especially you know there were periods maybe in the 60s for example or the early 70s um where even mainstream stuff was like pretty out there and oh, pretty yeah. arty and auteur driven and and so you know, I would love to see a, a little bit of a return to that where even if there's not a lot of money for us to make films, we can do quite a lot with, you know, relatively little money. Um, and I think there that audiences, if they really gave it a shot, they they would learn to that they can get more out of uh, kind of a weird indie film than they do out of a standard templatized, you know, blockbuster, which those are fun to watch, too. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying don't watch whatever, you know, the latest uh, Mission Impossible movie or, or something. But but I think there's an opportunity to see other things and to experience, to, to get other ideas and thoughts and experiences out of smaller films. I think it's a really good opportunity, and this is our chance to get people on board with that, maybe. Hell yeah. So I'm really curious. We met at uh, South Texas Underground, and we pretty much were talking about the projects we were working on, but I really don't know that much about your background. What what got you into filmmaking? I always love hearing people's stories of how they started, what got them in. Yeah, it's kind of a weird path for, for us because uh, so my, my partner, my wife and creative partner, Sophia, and I, we um, had we met doing music. So we played in bands for years. And um, I was in a band at the, this is now 2005-ish. Uh, so I was in a band called The Motion Sick. And uh, we were, you know, we would tour and do stuff. Not, I wouldn't say like huge success, but we, we were indie college radio, relatively successful. Right on. Um, and so, you know, we started doing different things and we decided we really wanted to make a music video. It was the, it was the right time to do a music video. And so we made a music video for a song that we had called 30 Lives. And that ended up doing really well and getting played on like some of the MTV networks. And we got it into the a Dance Dance Revolution game. Um, and so we saw like, oh, that was a really big success. And the video was a big part of that. We really enjoyed making it. And I'd always been interested in film. I used to do like uh, film on, you know, v VHS, VHS uh, editing as a kid. We had a, a camcorder at one point. Um, and Sophia also did the same. She was in the EV club in, in high school. So, you know, we had been into that stuff, but we'd kind of abandoned it in favor of music. Um, and then we made another music video for another one of our bands called Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, that ended up on the Time Magazine Best of the Year, Best Videos of the Year list. And so that was really cool. And so we, we really were like, music videos are the way to go for us, but we can't afford to hire people to make like these slick, awesome videos. So what we're going to do, because we're interested in filmmaking, is buy a pretty cheap camera and um, just start to go for like concepts that are gonna reach people and, and make our own music videos. And so we started doing that and that it turned out to be like pretty successful. Like we were getting good numbers of views on YouTube, get good press with them, even though they weren't like as high, high quality production as some of the previous stuff we did. What was the camera? I'm just curious, what was the- uh, what At that it was like a, uh, a Panasonic, uh, like it was like HVC 1000 or something. It's okay. like a, a camcorder. It was like a 1080, you know, HD camcorder. So yep. it was, it, it was okay. I mean, yeah. It wasn't like the worst, you know, the quality wasn't like the worst, worst, but it wasn't, we got scared about buying because we were making the choice. We're like, should we get like a DSLR? And then I, I, at the time I was like, oh, there are all these settings. It sounds complicated. Let's <laughs> yeah. get, you know, now I realize like I should have just, you know, we should have dove right in at that point. But anyway, so we got the simpler version, made a bunch of music videos. Um, and then gradually uh, started doing like 48 hour film festival 
and started making short films. And then what happened, this is like the big, I guess, silly turning point. This movie theater in Boston called the Brattle Theater holds a film contest every year where uh, it's, a, I guess, a trailer contest. And where, what they do is they assign a topic and um, you make a trailer basically, you know, for that. It's kind of like a 48 hour, like they assigned it. The title was 10. They assigned uh, you, you, I don't know, you got randomly assigned like a genre and like an object and a thing. Okay. You know, that kind of yeah, stuff. the same. Yeah, like a lot of those yeah, film basically like type things. Yeah. Yeah. So we ended up, we ended up with, uh, so we had to make a movie called 10. I think it had to be a mystery and, you know, the object was like a, I don't remember. So some a candlestick or something okay. like yeah, that. Yeah, something random. Whatever, They're whatever always like totally thing. random. Yeah, like so some random thing. So we made a trailer, uh, kind of like a, t I was like, okay, 10. And that reminds me of like the 10 little Indians, like the Agatha Christie thing. Since it's supposed to be like a mystery. We could do like a weird kind of like art horror mystery thing. That's kind of based on that. We did it like a pig theme thing. And so we gathered together a group of our friends and made a trailer for it and had a lot of fun doing it and ended up winning the like curator's choice award at that, at that thing. And then a bunch of the people who were involved in that were like, Hey, we should make this movie. So, um, stupidly, you know, we went from making a trailer where we had a bunch of scenes in a, in a trailer that we didn't have a plot or, <laughs> or anything for to like, yeah, we could make this movie. We could just get everybody together and just, and just do this. And so we, uh, ran a Kickstarter campaign, raised, you know, not, not a ton of money, but enough to make it work. Got 17 people together, rented a mansion in Rhode Island and uh shot for 10 days and made uh, our first movie called called 10. That's and, so um, awesome. I love those kind of like we just went that that punk rock mentality. It went, what year was this? This is uh we shot that in 2012. I think it came out in 2014, you know, okay. ultimately after, after everything. But yeah, no, that's always been we've always been very DIY like with the music stuff and everything. We're like, you know, we can if if somebody else can do it, we can figure out how to do it too, right? That's the the attitude. Right. And um you know, and we thought like, oh, we'll just make this movie. Nobody will watch it. It'll be terrible and whatever. And then we, um, you know, we submitted it to festivals. The Boston Underground Film Festival was always kind to us with our music videos and other stuff. And they ended up programming it, I think, out of, you know, kindness for us. Not not necessarily that it deserved it. but they were <laughs> and, um, and for whatever reason, uh, Michael Gingold from Fangoria was at the fest that year. He's like, oh, I want to write a, a feature on this, on your movie for Fangoria. And so he ended up interviewing us and doing like a, you know, full page feature in Fangoria on our movie. I mean, it was just like, it was like bumbling to, I don't want to call it success, but like, you know, bumbling through to encouragement for continuing doing what, what we're doing. But it's that continuing, and, uh, man. People don't understand that that's really the key is the continuing i mean you guys bought the camera in 2005 bought a camera in 2005 and started shooting stuff and then you're talking about 2012 making your first feature that persistence and that's something i've had to learn that's really tough is like i always just keep making things because i can't stop like i feel like right. if i stop i'll die so i just right. keep doing it but i've slowly progress like we got a bunch of nominations for genre blast and people are like, oh, man, you know, they, they'll message me and they'll be like, congrats. It's awesome to see this success or whatever. The way they say it is so like it just happened, like you did it. And you're like, not you don't feel that. Like you just right. keep going. Right. It's like you like <laughs> the, the second that there's a beat of success, it's like you just hunger for more of it. Yeah, we always kind of say that we don't spend a lot of time like bathing in whatever it is that's going on. We're just like, what's where are we headed next? Like, what's the next thing? Like, cool. OK, we got that. Let's. Keep, keep moving forward. I think there's a cool correlation, too, between a lot of the people I talk to, how they started in bands and they started with music and the people who did, who realized you could pick up a guitar, that ability to just, like, make something out of literally nothing, that teaches that DIY spirit. It, it really is. It's those small, uh, you know, moments where you're like, I'm just going to try this thing. And then, you know, people, people don't realize, but, like, that little bit of encouragement and that little bit of, like, oh, there's something you know, there's a little bit of light somewhere in this process, right? So there's something that's worth worthwhile, I think keeps you moving forward. And then you just, you know, you get the, I, it, you know, we're all, we're all doing this because we have some desire to like reach people or connect with people or tell stories that are meaningful to people. And, um, you know, whenever you see even a small success of that, even if you reach a few people or a few people enjoy your movie, or there's, you know, there's something that like, move somebody in some way then you you know you want to keep doing it that's like the best that's the that's what 
being a human is, right? We, we've already, society has taken away our need for survival. I don't have to go like hunt. Yeah, right. <laughs> grocery store. So now like we need to find some purpose, right? There needs to be some like existential purpose. And I think, you know, we try to find ways to just connect with each other and to do something that's like carry some kind of meaning in life beyond just survival. And I think that's, you know, that's what it is. Every little bit is like feeding that, that feeling of like, I've made some, some small connection to someone else. So, yeah. Dude, I, that, that connection, it, that's one of the hard things I think right now is that we don't have that connection all the time. We're not feeling it. We're not, you know, talking to people about the stuff. It makes it difficult to get up and want to continue. Yeah. We've, we've worked on a bunch of films. Uh, they're not really like, you know, we help produce other people's films sometimes and do other work. And so we've worked on a bunch of films uh, that that are seeing successes. So like a few of them are playing a genre blast and doing and got nominations. And that feels really good too because it's not even just like our voice or our ideas, but we're we're actually we've been able to like take the opportunity to help others get their ideas out and to craft those into something that that people can enjoy. So that that's been rewarding as well. Like I've, been, I've I'm finding you know more and more that that's a cool part of doing this. Like I want to make my own stuff, but I also really do like you know, helping, if I see somebody who has a great idea or a great concept that I, that I feel good about and I have the opportunity to help them actually film it or help them, you know, hone it in some way, that's really cool too. It is. It's such an awesome feeling. And it's something that I've always been, I, I rarely work on other people's stuff and not out of like, I'm better than it. It's literally because I, I haven't been able to pay people to do stuff and I can't ask for favors. I'm so bad at asking for favors, unless it's like my best friends, like the guys I've known for 30 years. Those dudes, I'm like, hey guys, come to the woods and film with me. That's how Grey Woods got made. It's just literally my best friends. Um, but asking other people for favors is really, really hard. But with COVID, I've gotten like way more contract work than I've ever had in my life because I'm an animator. These businesses still have money, but they can't hire people to do things the way they used to because they can't, you know, they can't hire a film crew to come and film something or film an interview. So now they're asking for animation. I have a lot of friends who are out of work because they're artists. They're struggling to find stuff to do. So I started just using the money I was making from contracts because I work full time for the news as well. I took that contract money I was making and I've started hiring my friends to do comics like the Good Exorcist comics, uh, music. I'm finding that more rewarding yeah 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 no I, I definitely have been feeling more and more and especially in this time i mean this is what we talked about before it's like i can't function for my normal 12 hours of working every day but if i can kind of like produce projects and like allocate resources and then like you know divide up the work and and give it to people that that has been a, a productive approach to it because some of the you know people are excited to do stuff right now and they're excited to have work and they're excited to be involved in things because it's we we do feel really disconnected there's a lot i mean we're we're pretty social like we usually go out you know almost almost every day to some some amount uh you know we go to the movies a lot we go to events a lot we kind of try to see people pretty often so it is does feel weird now to be completely isolated from everybody in the world right? oh my god it's so weird and putting myself out there to other artists friends and being like hey I know you're out of work. Can I hire you to do this comic? It, it's also made me realize how much better other people are than me. And I love that. Like, it makes me go like, oh, my God, I should be doing this. I should be hiring people because they're better animators than I am. And they're better at this. So actually learning how to produce, I guess. I mean, it's producing. I never I never thought of myself as a producer, but it's I've essentially stumbled into it because of where we're at. Yeah, that's what I mean. That is what it becomes. You were a producer, even if you were doing it yourself. You right. still... You know, so now it's just like, how do we basically break down and delegate tasks to other people, right? And that and that gets harder. I mean, that's that's another skill, right? That takes some practice. At least for me, it took takes some practice to figure out. But um, but yeah, I mean, I love working with other people, and I and I love how stuff turns out. I mean, we've we've had we have one project that's on the fest uh, circuit right now. That's um, I guess it's it's basically a documentary. It's called Darling Pet Monkey, and it's about a guy who mail ordered a monkey in the sixties, true, like a true story. Wow. This guy, uh, Tim Tate, who lives in DC. I had been working on a, a broader documentary about uh, items sold in the back of comic books. And so we had gone and interviewed him and we'd been sitting on this interview for a few years. So what we ended up doing is we, uh, we talked to our buddy, Jim McDonough, who 
does like crazy weird. It's I guess it's like animation. It half he he films stuff and then you know composites and animates and so it's it's a multimedia like mixed sure. weird weird thing. But I would call it more animation than anything else. Um, but yeah, so we talked to him. We're like, hey, would you be interested in trying to tell this story? I feel like your style would really do it. And we we barely you know I gave him feedback on it, but really it was his, you know, it was his project ultimately. And we helped with like the post, the sound and music and stuff. And um, that's been doing really well on the fest circuit. And it's been really fun to see the response to that. And it feels great. Cause it's like a movie that we sort of made, but we didn't, we, we gave the opportunity to somebody else to show, you know, his creative side and he's having a great time with it. He's really enjoying the success of that. And, you know, he's like, I want to do more stuff like this. And so, you know, we're trying to expand that, that kind of project. So that's been a really nice, like, collaborative success that we probably wouldn't have thought about, you know, until like the last year or so. And we did that before COVID, but but it, you know, it still is within the within recent times is when we started delving into this kind of collaborative thing and this Dude, I love it. distribution of tasks. Yeah, that's amazing. So, okay, I've got a question. You work in a lot of different like mediums and you know, music videos, feature films, short films. You're like an inspiration in how much you do with all of these these different types what's your favorite like part of the process you work in all these different avenues but like what is your what's the thing that you're like most excited to do wow that's a well thanks for thanks for saying that uh i i think it's hard to pinpoint one thing because i find it exciting to do different things all the time you know feature films are kind of like my my baby like that's what i really feel like it gives me the real opportunity to tell the stories I want to tell and, and all that. But at the same time, I love doing, you know, short films when the, when the time is right. I love doing music videos. Um, love it all. There's no, yeah, there's no real, there's no real, like what's, what's the best thing or what's the yeah. the best feeling thing. It's really like anything that we make and then seeing it connect with people. That's, that's the best thing is like how it, how it reaches people. But yeah, I think in my heart, like if I want to really express myself, usually features are the most like they're coming from the deepest place though. You know, we've had shorts that are pretty, we have a short now that's, uh, that's been on the circuit as well. That's a bit, that's part of an anthology that just came out. That's a pretty intense, um, it's called pride and it's part of this anthology called seven sins. So, you know, each of the sins is a segment of it. And, um, it's a, it's like our most like graphic, vile, horrible, extreme horror thing that we've ever done. And it's not really like a thing that I'm, you know, usually kind of into doing, but it was just right for telling the story that's been, or addressing this issue that's been kind of sitting in the back of my mind since like, you know, the mid nineties. So I've been holding, holding on to this stuff for a long time. And I thought like when given the opportunity, when someone, when asked to participate in this anthology, like, okay, we can really put our hearts into this thing and make something that's crazy. And it's going to probably offend people or get us in trouble. But, um, <laughs> Dude, I'm yeah, so, so stoked to see it. <laughs> I, you guys won it. Is that the one that won? Weirdest boner at it won, <laughs> yes, it won, the, it won the stick and wrong weirdest boner award. Which uh, I think the idea, I mean, I don't know that it's exactly defined, but I think the idea of weirdest boner is that it has some kind of like sexual content that's very disturbing. Yeah, right. Um, so it's you know, it's not like it's it's supposed to be like oh you, you get turned on by this thing, but like you, you shouldn't. It really shouldn't. Yeah. So there's definitely, I mean, it's a very, very graphic, uh, it's my, my first, uh, nudity in film and very graphic and, uh, you know, it, I, I, I physically suffered a bit to make it and I think it was worth doing. And, um, so yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's, again, it's a thing where I thought like, I want to do this. It's really for me to like express this thing. And, um, I thought really it wouldn't reach people well, like it would be too much, too confrontational for people. But it's really been, the response to it's been really positive and really nice, even from people, even like friends who I would know don't want to see that kind of stuff normally. They've they've been really uh, cool and responsive to it. And I'm really happy to see like the opportunity to address a difficult issue and kind of tackle something that's putting something on screen that's not what, you know, we enjoy seeing, but might be help, useful to see or useful to experience. Yeah, yeah so. totally. I mean, this is ringing true to a conversation that Daniel and I had. Daniel's the guy who plays Doug Graywoods. He's sort of my writer, producer, friend. And um, he and I were having this conversation about the fact that we had never made our defining animation. Like, we've just never, every project we do just sort of becomes like, oh, this is a cool idea, let's make it. But we've never gone like, 
what's the one thing? Now we have the skills, we have the time, we kind of know what we're doing a little bit better than ever before. Why not try to make that like defining animation? What defines us? Like, why are we doing this? And it, it, I think a lot of people are going to do that. They're going to make their big project now going like, oh, if I'm not going to do it now, I'm never going to do it. I might as well do it now. So it's kind of similar. We're pushing the boundaries. Obviously, we haven't made it yet. So I'm maybe you know telling tales outside of school and it might, people will be like, Josh, no, no. <laughs> But hopefully the same thing happens where I do it and people do go, you know, a handful of people will be like, that's that's weird, man. This is weird. But other people will go like, hey, man, that was a bold choice. Way to go. Yeah, I feel like, you know, I sort of thought through this, like, what is the right approach to this and how comfortable do I feel just doing something that I know is going to be difficult for people to watch? And I, I sort of came to the conclusion that if you're if you're approaching what you're what you're approaching in earnest and like from your heart and you mean, you know, something it's it's important to you in some way then I think people will see that ultimately. I mean, not, you know, not everybody, right? So somebody's going to be like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, of course. But I (laughs) love that. I found that I love the, uh, what I hate is the mediocre response. I hate the like, yeah, it was okay. Like, yeah, good job. You did something. But if people, people who are like, oh God, it's awful. I'm like, yeah, okay. I got them. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, definitely. I think, you know, like I said, reaching people is the key. So sometimes reaching people means, you know, hurting them or not, not hurting them like to be mean, but, causing causing yeah. you know difficulty in in what they are challenged with what they have to think about what they have to confront and and i think it's an opportunity if forcing people to confront things that are difficult is good for them um if they're you know i don't i always say with this film too i always try to warn people i don't want people to watch it without having some context like i don't want to like show it on a billboard on the side of the highway or something but i i do feel like as long as people are like okay i, I understand the context i'm ready to experience this um, I'm willing, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a uh, consenting participant in watching this, this movie, then I feel like people do benefit from uh, confronting things that are difficult. That reminds me of like when I started figuring out how I was going to kind of promote Greywood's plot, I was very persistent about the fact that it's gory, like, you know, putting it in the trailer, the, you know, blood and stuff like that. And I love it because then people start watching it and as the movie begins, they're so tense they're expecting that to be the movie and then it's so stupid and goofy especially in the first half that people like completely let their guard down and it i love that like being able to warn people in advance and then sort of seeing what they're how it lives up to their expectation that warning right right and i it that sounds like you know you're kind of you're warning people and telling them and letting them know but then challenging them and the challenge of the the challenging people and the, the projects that challenge are the stuff that i dig that's the thing. I mean, that's what art should do, right? It should it should break down something inside of you, right? If it's just if it's just sitting on the surface, then it doesn't really what what good is. I mean, it's entertaining. It fills time, sure. whatever. But but it fills you, time. You know, oh, good really, lord! That's like the yeah. that would be the that would be like the worst review someone could ever give me. Is like, yeah, it filled time. <laughs> I mean, I think that's honestly a lot of film. A lot of film. That's the goal, basically. Right. I mean, it's like not not the kind of things we're making, but the you know the goal of like. Uh, I you know I just watched all the Mission Impossible movies, so I keep saying that Mission Impossible. But like the goal of the Mission Impossible movies is to fill time. It's not like to, you're, they're not going to move you in any way. Yeah, they're right. On they're fine. Like there's nothing. People were complaining. They're like, oh, I didn't like the second one. This one was, and I'm like, are you really trying to break down anything about these movies? Dude, like, that's so funny. Like I post- a guy with a motorcycle <laughs> jumping. Who cares? Like it's not. <laughs> I know. I love it. I love it when people get like enraged about some opinion about a big blockbuster movie. Like it really matters at all. I've I posted on Twitter the other day that X Men Three was my favorite X Men movie, which isn't necessarily true, but it's not also not true. I remember more from X Three than any of the other X Men movies, and I posted that and like. People were like, dude, I'm unfriending you. Like, they got so, or unfollow you. They got so mad at me. And I'm like, this is the stupidest thing to get mad at ever. That I liked a movie where Juggernaut, like, says some stupid line. Like, that's what really makes you mad. <laughs> X3 was fun, dude, because it, like, subverts what what you expect. I mean, I saw it knowing nothing, right? I So I just, this is back in the day when I think you still didn't really have everything spoiled in advance. So I go into the theater and see it. I'm like, they didn't kill Cyclops. Wait, they killed Cyclops. Yeah. Wait, it's really dead. And then they're just like killing everybody. You know, it's like, so I, I, 
you know, whatever. I don't know if it's a great movie, but it definitely gave me an experience that was different. It was an exciting experience because I didn't expect yeah. Like there's moments of it I hated, there's moments of it I loved, but the whole time I was just going like, this is the weirdest take on this they could have gone. Like they went yeah. from X-Men 2 to this and yeah. I dug that. I also still, I can't get around the fact that that last scene is, well, not, probably not the last scene, it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but the scene with Wolverine like clawing his way as his flesh is being ripped off by Jean Grey to kill her. Just like that is such a bold, awesome moment. Yeah, it was, I mean, I think people have very funny... Uh, expectations about movies like they set yeah they set the idea of what the movie should be before they see it and then if it's not that they're mad about it um and which i think is a weird approach you know if you're like i've decided this movie is this and wait a second i don't know if it's good or bad but it's just not what i decided so i'm mad like i, I hate it i hate it i refuse to I refuse to open up and, and experience it and i think you know like the x3 is a perfect exa example of that where it's like they clearly nobody making that film was like we're gonna make a normal <laughs> we're gonna make the logical next step here <laughs> nobody was thinking that right i mean no they're just like we're gonna throw everything into like a blender and just destroy it all like we're just gonna go nuts and it's good and bad yeah. that's what i i mean that's what i kind of the truth is i kind of love that movie because of the fact that it makes so many people mad yeah. and because it just didn't it just did that half of the fun of that movie and and a lot of movies that kind of get make people angry especially blockbuster movies that people don't like, the reason why I tend to dig those ones more, I think, is because they do challenge me and make me go, did I like that? Did I not? Like, that scene was interesting, and that making me think is is the way to my heart. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, with, I'm right there with you. I, I definitely prefer... Sometimes I prefer the big swings, even if they're not, like, successful. Like, even if they miss, right? I, I prefer to see a big swing rather than, a, like, a rehash, especially in kind of franchise stuff. How many times do I need to see the same movie, right? So it's if you're going to take a big swing, even if it's like, oh wow, you made a this is a, a, a terrible choice. Like at least, <laughs> at least you tried something. That's the way I say it. Like at least you gave it a shot, um, and that's kind of fun. I don't know. It's fun to see a, a big swing and a and maybe a miss or or not. I'm a big I'm a big supporter of uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, um, and like. You know, I, whatever we can argue, like <laughs> if it's good or bad, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. But what I like about it is they made three movies that were like thirty serials that were like structured and based on the the idea of a nineteen thirty serial. Then they're making a new movie set in the fifties, and they're like, forget the thirty serial that we've been using for Indiana Jones. We're gonna make a fifties B movie as if like Indiana Jones never existed in the thirties. We only created this character to exist in the fifties and have like aliens and all the all the crap that like would be in a 50s movie right um and it, it's a lot of weird choices in, in that sense but but you know like they they made the choice it's not a mis nothing in the movie is a mistake it's just like you can you could hate it but it's not a mistake it's like a choice to do something completely different and for me i would ra way rather see that than watch like you know the same movie made again like I, i've already seen that movie three times it was good raiders is great you know, the rest are yeah. the same thing, basically. So, like, so anyway, that, that's an example, yeah. And I, I, have you ever read that original script? No. Oh, it's so good. You should read it. There's a lot of similarities, but there's a lot of differences that are really interesting to see as, like, a filmmaker, seeing how they changed things and, like, choices that started in the original script and stayed in it but kind of moved or changed a little bit. It's really interesting. Yeah, I've, I've had that same conversation many times about Indiana Jones and, like, love it or hate it. It was a totally different move, and you have to respect the move of just going, like, no, we're going to do this. We're going to give it a shot. And I also, like, if I don't like something in a series, it doesn't ruin the thing I liked. <laughs> I never can wrap my head around why that bothers people so much. Yeah. Do you do you have that? Does, it, does like, something come out where, like, Arrested Development season one, two, and three I loved, and then... Like the when they kind of brought it back, it started out okay, and then it kind of crapped out, and I don't even think I ever finished it. But it doesn't ruin season two of Arrested Development that I think is absolutely perfect. Something like that is more like episodic, so it's you know, it doesn't really you don't really need to like you can throw away bad episodes of things, right? Like I love I always I'm a huge Star Trek fan, and um, I try to always say I love Star Trek, and that means that I like maybe like twenty percent of the episodes of Star. Trek. <laughs> But that's like, that's a huge success to me. That you know? is a huge success. Like, right. I love 20% of the episodes of Star Trek. And like, I could probably, 
like probably 50% should be like deleted from, you know, I just think they're terrible. Um, but that's okay. Like that, that's still fine to me. Like that works fine. The problem is, and this is why I, I have a hard time with like serial television because it does kind of like bank on the whole thing working or not. Yes. You know, so like you, you kind of do screw it when you like something like Lost is a great example. That is exactly where my brain went, man. It's, it's rough. I mean, you know, there's like season three and four of Lost are like really cool, but like ultimately they still don't function on their own without the other stuff. And then you, you get to the end and you're like, this kind of sucks. And then and you put so much time into it. Oh man, it, that is that that one is a perfect example of a killer where you're just like, yes, this is so dope. Oh but, god. I wasted all this time. <laughs> but yeah, but that's why I like episodic shows because it's like you could have one, even, you know, I, like the X-Files is a show I never really loved. I, I never really got into it, but there are five or six episodes of the X-Files that I think are like fucking awesome. Masterpieces, yeah. Like super, super awesome. And to me, that's, again, that's a success. Like that sounds like I'm being critical of the show, but I, you know, five or six awesome episodes is like five or six more than most shows episodes. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and just because the rest of the show doesn't work for me doesn't affect those individual episodes. You know, I can enjoy them just, just in that context. But again, the, when it's serial stuff, you're, you're like either 50 episodes of this work or they don't. You know, it's like you're, the whole thing is kind of sewn together into one, one giant piece. And that rarely pays off for me. So, Yeah, I don't watch a whole lot of that long shows unless I sit down and like, binge it in a block now because I do hate that. I hate that cliffhanger. I hate that like obviously trying to keep me watching versus telling the right story. <laughs> I just that drives me nuts. So I I tend to only binge stuff and I don't even watch all that many, but like I recently watched Fargo, the the show, and if I had watched that like episode by episode, I probably would have hated it. It like lost. I that's like the perfect example. That's exactly where my brain went. So I like to ask weird hypothetical questions. I'm a big fan of like the crazy hypothetical. Right. So if if you're down to answer some of my weird hypotheticals, sure, I'll give it a shot. And uh, there's no there's no wrong answer. I sometimes get people where I ask the hypotheticals and they're like, oh god, and I they almost look like they're in pain. I'm like, oh, you just we can skip it. We don't have to. We don't. You don't have to. You could sit down and talk with one character from a movie. A character from a movie. Who oh, wow. are you talking with? This is a good. This is a good one. I think I, if I'm put on the spot, I think it's uh, Orson Welles's character in the movie Touch of Evil. Oh, nice! Like the corrupt uh, sheriff, you know, investigator guy. I, I don't remember his name, but um, he has uh, some really interesting ideas about morality that I think would be uh, would make would make for good conversation. Yeah, like right now, I was just thinking about um, the character that Daniel Day Lewis plays, and there will be blood. I, for some reason, he popped into my head just now, and I'm like. What what an awesome like weird conversation when you because you kind of know you know who the character is right. in this in this scenario you know what he's done you know where they've been and and you've sort of lived with them now you get to ask them some messed up questions about right. why they did what they did oh that'd be so fun so I have access to get you a free ticket to any show any play any movie any band anything you want to go to and all expenses paid what are you going to see. This is uh, historical or, or current because uh, this is any time, but any time, but uh, and, and COVID isn't happening. You can actually go. You're, you can go to this thing. I think, you know, ultimately there are all these bands I love, all these artists I love, but I hate going to see them in large venues. So there are so many artists that I love that I would love to see in like a small venue. So, yes. I'm, inventing, so I'm inventing a show that doesn't exist. Yeah, you can. But, uh, <laughs> I think... I would love to see, you know what band I would love to see again is Einsturz and the Neubauten, and they were supposed to be touring the U.S. Uh, we're supposed to see them in October, I think, it was September, and they canceled their, their U.S. tour because of this. Yeah. Um, I would love to see them in like a small, like 1980s, like smoky lounge club. Oh, that'd be amazing. That'd be the ultimate thing, yeah. My dad and I go to Tool every time Tool comes to town. I love seeing Tool live. It's just an experience. So, But it's always huge shows. So my dad and I, they, this Tool cover band was playing at a bar. He and I just decided randomly, like, well, 
a Tool cover band? Let's go. How bad could this be? Like, this is going to be awful. No one can be Tool. So we went to see it just kind of thinking we just get drunk and laugh at the shitty Tool cover band. They slayed. They sounded just like Tool. Like, it was flawless. And we were both, we both walked out and we're like, oh my God, I would, how cool would it be to actually see Tool at a tiny show like this? That would be amazing. Um, That's a great answer. Someone, I, I did a podcast last week and they said the final Tarantino his last movie, whatever, you know, he's talking about it, he's going to retire. His last movie at the premiere at the New Beverly. And I'm like, oh, that's a great answer, too. Yeah. I, I would, I, I can't believe you guys, everyone answers with such great answers. I'd be terrible at these. I don't even know what I would answer. That's why I like asking them. I miss, I miss the New Beverly uh, pretty, pretty badly right now, too, because we were there at least once a week, often, you know, twice or three times a week. Um, and it was always just like really fun to see the stuff that they programmed. Yeah. We saw we actually we saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, it wasn't the premiere like with everybody, but it was like the opening opening screening of it at the New Bev, which was really cool. And uh, like Guillermo del Toro was there. You know, it's oh, a few, nice. like a, it was like a whole uh, everybody was like really feeling excited about it. They had like the posters from the um, when he goes to Italy in it to make the other movies. They had the actual posters in the theater up, and so it was really it was cool. It was fun. I just love how much. Tarantino loves film. It's so awesome. Not like people poo-poo Tarantino. Obviously, he's loved. But a lot of people will talk about, especially filmmakers, will kind of talk about the fact that he you know, takes from other stuff. But the reason why it works for him so well is how much he fucking loves it. He's doing it because he absolutely loves it. Okay, so I'm going to throw you under the bus because you have an interesting take on uh-oh. movies and stuff and I, I sort of hate this question but I also kind of love it because people give great answers but your last movie your like desert island movie what's your you can only ever watch one movie again what is that movie I always say my favorite movie so this is a two, two part answer I always say my favorite movie is The City of Lost Children but I don't think I would bring that to the desert island <laughs> yeah right exactly it's a different like, answer the only movie I would watch because the only movie I could watch I think I would bring Barbarella Nice. <laughs> I just think like I could enjoy that. It just has like a lushness that I could just, I could just, you know, live enjoy in enjoy for forever. Yeah, exactly. I could watch it over and over again forever. The movie that you respect the most, your favorite movie, the movie that you put that as like the top tier movie, is rarely the movie that you'd really want to watch over and over again. Like, <laughs> I mean, my favorite movie is probably also the movie I would take, but it's which is American movie, the documentary. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But that's just because I find it so, like, fun. I don't think it's the best movie ever made, but it would definitely be my desert island, and when people ask what my favorite movie is, that's what I say. But there are many, many, many movies that are far better produced, far, you know, I'd be like, this is a far better movie, but this is my movie. Right. Um, it, all, it all comes down to what a be- what a good movie is or what a, you know, what a the great movie is or what the best movie is. And I think it, it's, it's a complicated question uh, to even think about, right? Because it's like, are you making any kind of objective measure? Some of the movies I love the most are clearly not the, the best <laughs> created. They're not the best crafted movies. Um, but does that make them less good? I don't know. Not, probably not, right? I mean, if, if depends on what the criteria is, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the amount of times I've watched Tommy Boy is absolutely insane. Like, in my life, I would never call that movie a masterpiece in the sense of, like, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be in any top 100 greatest films of all time list. But to me, that movie has made me happier than probably anything besides, you know, my wife and kids. <laughs> like, that movie has brought me so much joy over the years. One more. Uh, oh, okay, this is a, this is, might be a cool one. I was on Rebel Without a Crew, and I was able to be mentored by my hero, Robert Rodriguez. Like, I was insanely lucky. If you could be mentored by anyone, or you could follow any filmmaker around for or not even filmmaker artist around for a couple weeks and sort of learn and talk with them and get inspired whatever who would it be i think right now uh my favorite current filmmaker and i and i really appreciate his craft like so so you know not just like i love his movies but i love the the craft of it is peter strickland who made uh his most recent movies in fabric and his previous one before that was duke of burgundy Um, and then Burberian sound studio, if you, if you know that too, but so he just makes these like really, really beautiful, complex, um, they're, they're basically like weird art movies that I think are like some of the best things that are being made right now. 
And I think he would be really fun to follow because I, I'd love to understand how he develops his like subtext and how he crafts his like visual field and, and all the stuff. Cause I think there's a lot of attention given to that. Um, like, I think he's really an immersive artist uh, in that sense. And so I think that would be, that would be really fun. One of the things that I've learned, one of the better things to get to, to see and like watching behind the scenes, you know, hanging out with Robert at a studio and stuff like that is how following someone around or watching other filmmakers and how they work demystifies it for me and makes it feel like like watching Robert work on his $250 million movie was the first time, because he was filming Alita and he was sort of in the process on Alita. We got, got to hang out on the set and stuff and actually like seeing the Alita set made me go, oh, this is possible. Like I, in theory, anyone can make a $250 million movie. It's not impossible. Like it, it just, doesn't that $250 million movie just seems like impossible. Like when I think about the number and I think about it in my head, I'm like, that will never, ever, 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 ever happen. Standing on that set, I'm like, oh, this could happen. Like it happens. Yeah. And there's yeah. something, there's something really awesome about that concept of being able to like follow around someone and watch them and demystifying the process. That's been a big thing, I think, about because uh, we moved to Los Angeles from Boston uh, four years ago, and I think a big thing about it is like we go to all the horror events and go play like horror trivia and everything, and you start to see like all the directors around and like all the people around, and then you're like, oh, these are just normal people. And um, when I go see an interview with like Joe Dante, and he just talks the whole time about how nobody will give him money to make his, his the movie he wants to make, you're like. Oh, this is, it's like, it's like, you know, Don Coscarelli, uh, like we, we went, saw him a bunch of times and we saw him talk, talking about his book. Um, and Phantasm is one of my favorite movies ever. Like I think one of the, one of the best movies and, um, same thing. He just talks about his, how his entire life, like nobody would give him money to make movies. Nobody would let him make what he wanted. Nobody. So it's like, oh, they're just all people like us struggling to, you know, make anything happen. And, uh, it's maybe at a slightly different scale, but it's like, not that different, you know. It's uh, you know, totally. Joe Dante had a couple successes in his career, and he's made amazing movies that weren't successful. But like, he's just a guy. We think of them as these larger than life characters, or like, it's impossible. But then, yeah, you talk to them, or like, seeing, you know, Robert trying to steal time just to edit a little bit more on his huge movie. Like, it, th those moments meant a lot to me personally because. It did. It, it demystified it and made me go, okay, I guess I just got to work my ass off and who knows what will happen. Right, right. Man, this has been awesome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, letting, me, letting me rant. Do you have anything you want to promote? Any social media, anything like that? Sure, yeah. Our production company is called Launchover and we're on basically all the social media as, you know, at, at Launchover. And then I'm everywhere under Michael J. Epstein. So at uh, like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, just under my name. You still have uh, movies available on Amazon? Yeah, we have a bunch of stuff on Amazon. And then, um, like, our one of our movies got yanked from Amazon probably because of the, the nudity in it. Um, and that is now free on YouTube. So it's called Blood of the Tribids. That's on YouTube. Um, we try to make sure that our stuff is kind of available for yeah. people to watch. You know, I hate it's, – it's so, it's so frustrating for it to be, like, you know, hidden behind some – crazy weird paywall that nobody on a system that I nobody know. use but you know it's a tricky it's a tricky balance because we're trying to make make money and, obviously like, yeah. and like so it would, most of it's available in general some of it's on Tubi a couple of our movies are on Tubi some of it's on Amazon um but yeah it's a, it's a, it's out there it's all out there dude thank you so much thanks for having me yeah it was really fun wasn't that dude inspiring as hell god that was a great episode um you could check out, like Michael said, you can check out his stuff all over the place. He is extremely prolific. There are shorts and features and music videos and music and all sorts of stuff all over the place. So if you just search him anywhere, you'll find all of his content. I highly recommend checking out Clickbait. If you like the kind of stuff I'm making, you'll dig Clickbait. It's that kind of punk rock, uh, really DIY, but also really, really loves the craft of filmmaking and really, really respects the fact that an audience is going to be watching it type of movie. So anyway, there's that. Thank you so much to Michael for coming on the show. And until next time, I've been Josh. Thank you for joining me at Flush Studios. Stay inspired. Keep going. Keep pushing forward. And don't let your meat low, folks. Woo! 
this episode of the first two things This episode of the Flush Studios podcast was recorded live. Wait, no, it wasn't live. Okay. This episode of the Flush Studios podcast was recorded in tropical Minnesota. Theme song by Curtis Allen Hager. What are you doing? Can you say produced by my dad, Josh Stifter? Produced by my dad, Josh Stifter. Thanks for listening. Good job. All right, you want to go play with marbles? Yeah.